I'm Moni Böhm. I am a postdoctoral researcher here at the Zoological Society of London's Institute of Zoology. And this, well, this is the Zoological Society of London's inaugural podcast. Now, I'm here tonight at a panel debate hosted by the Zoological Society of London in the wake of the landmark Living Planet Report 2016, which was published at the end of October. Now, this report has been in the news quite a lot, but in case you missed it, it showed that since 1970, overall global wildlife populations have fallen by 58%. So in tonight's debate, given the findings of the report, we'll be asking, can we protect the planet? Can each one of us make lifestyle choices that can help our species and ecosystems? Or do we need to put on political pressure to stop species declines? As with any self-respecting debate, at the end of the evening there will be a vote on the motion and the debate, which is, my lifestyle choices help to determine whether species go extinct. So yes, a very cheerful evening ahead for all of us. Now I, for one, can barely hold a microphone, never mind save the planet or in fact do a podcast, so I will be greatly relying on the wisdom of tonight's panelists to try and make sense of these questions. To start us off, I have one of the co-authors of the Living Planet Report with me, Louise McRae, who coincidentally I share an office with. Apart from that, Louise has worked on the Living Planet Report and the Living Planet Index, which underlies the report, for around 10 years. So what Louise doesn't know about the Living Planet Index is not worth knowing. So, Louise, 58% decline in wildlife populations since 1970. That sounds like quite a staggering number. What is the data behind these estimates? Well, what we did was we collected population trend data for over 14,000 vertebrates, um, and that's over 3,700 species. And this looks at the change in the population sizes over time. Now, when we looked at the average of all of those populations, we found that this was an average of a 58% decline since 1970. And are certain systems doing worse than others? Yes. Um, unfortunately, poor freshwater species are um, in catastrophic decline really the the figure is 81% for freshwater species and that's considerably worse compared to terrestrial species which showed a 38% decline and marine species which showed a 36% decline so it's really our freshwater ecosystems that are in the direst trouble. Now tonight we're debating how we can stop these declines these 58% declines in wildlife populations um, can you tell us what the causes for them are in the first place? Yes, so alongside the population trend data, we also collected information on what threats there are to these populations. And we found that the biggest threat is changes to the species habitat. So that can be complete loss of a habitat or degradation or fragmentation. So that seems to be the main threat. And the drivers behind that tend to be food production and energy production. Now, other threats that are important are things like exploitation, so that can be overfishing or uh, poaching of species as well, things like pollution, and we're also seeing climate change becoming a, a more important threat over time. So, can I protect the planet? So, I think there are many things that individuals can do. Um, thinking about global biodiversity, we all unknowingly have an impact on global biodiversity, depending on the food we eat, maybe the furniture we buy, where we get our, our products from. So there's definitely things we can do. Perhaps eating less meat on occasion could have a, an impact on reducing habitat loss. Um, but also there can be stuff that you can do for your wildlife locally. So, um, I mean, wildlife is 
very resilient and often just if you give give them the space they need they can rebound so things like making your garden um, wildlife friendly I think can be a, a nice thing to do and I suppose finally the data behind this relies on thousands of, of volunteers sometimes some of these big surveys such as um, bird counts and butterfly counts and so it's without these dedicated volunteers we wouldn't have the the picture that we have of what is happening to our wildlife so the other thing that people can do is actually go out and help count either whether it's birds or butterflies or beetles whatever takes your fancy but um, you can go out and actually count animals and then this data actually goes into these sorts of indicators and helps uh, give a picture of what's happening to our wildlife. Cool. Count wildlife, eat less meat, make a wildlife-friendly garden. So with me now is Robin Freeman, yet another author on the Living Planet Report. Robin, can you just briefly introduce yourself to our audience? Yeah, I'm Robin Freeman. I'm the head of the Indicators and Assessments Unit at the Zoological Society of London. Excellent. Very short and to the point. Um, Robin, what are you hoping is the outcome of this debate? What are you hoping to achieve tonight? I hope that we have an interesting discussion about how it is that we engage people to think about biodiversity and to think about how their lives may impact biodiversity. Uh, there was something someone said recently that was nice, which is that you don't have to be a conservationist to do conservation. So as long as you do something and think about how the impact of your work be you a physicist or a conservationist or a mathematician, may change the world in the future, then at least we're all doing something right. So how can we make sure that um, people understand that they have the power to do something about these wildlife declines? Good question. I think one of the most important things is that people do something. They don't do nothing. Because I think that one of the risks of this is that people think the problems are so big, uh, there are such a magnitude that doing something on a small scale with them will have no impact. But I think that just beginning to understand, to learn about how their daily lives impact biodiversity is the first step to allowing them to take advantage of things when they come around that will help biodiversity in a larger Excellent. So with me now is Mark Linus. Uh, Mark, would you briefly introduce yourself to our audience? Yes, I'm an environmental writer and campaigner, and I'm currently working with the Cornell Alliance for Science at Cornell University. Fantastic. So wildlife populations have fallen by 58% since 1970. That's why we're here tonight. Are individual decisions going to make a difference? Well, wildlife is something which concerns everybody, and it's important not to mix up biodiversity loss and extinction risk with what's happened, which is the, the decline in wildlife populations. And that really shows just how dramatic human impact has been on pretty much our whole landscapes globally. It's farming, it's you know cities, it's industrialism, it's pretty much everything about our way of life has, has had this impact. Uh, so it's difficult to tease out any single thing and say, right, do less of this or do more of that. But to be honest, the whole trajectory of human civilization has to be more towards sustainability. We have to look at having a fully circular economy so we're not extracting resources all the time from the earth and from the oceans. Um, and we have to tackle climate change. That's critically important if we're going to reduce future extinction risk as well because even if you protect habitats in certain locations and the climate changes, then, to be honest, you've lost your nature reserve. So there's, there's so much we've got to do. What The decisions that we make in, in these particular years that are here and now are, are the most important, which are going to change the future trajectory of, of the evolutionary history of the planet for millennia and millions of years thereafter. 
I suppose there are like the big three in terms of solutions to this issue, which I would call personal choices, uh, technology or political pressure. Which one do you think will be our saviour or is it a combination? <laughs> well, as always, it's a combination of all of the above. Um, technology is, is, is critically important, actually. That's how we've mitigated our impact as humanity in the past most effectively, I think. Uh, I mean, a, a great example of a controversial technology, which I work on a lot, is genetic modification. So if you can use genetic engineering of crop plants, then you can hopefully make farming more efficient in different ways and less impactful on the environment. And if you can make farming more efficient, then you don't need to expand agricultural land even as human populations increase and as, as global development continues. Uh, and that's, to be honest, I think from a conservation perspective, that's probably the most important thing. I'm not saying that GMOs are going to save the world, but what, what I do think is that we have to not increase the the footprint of farming um, because if, we if we're going to spare natural systems whether it's wetlands or, or coastal mangroves or rainforests or whatever we have to prevent them from being converted to agriculture I think really biodiversity and conservation wise that's our number one challenge fantastic thank you Mark um, so what we are debating here tonight is that wildlife populations have fallen by 58 percent since 1970 can you briefly introduce yourself to our audience Yes, my name is Gary Charnock, I'm from Ashton Hayes in Cheshire and I started a project 10 years ago uh, in which we tried to make our community and our village carbon neutral. Um, so for the last decade we've all been working together to see what we can do in terms of reduce, reducing our emissions. And um, do you think the idea of carbon neutral villages can be translated more widely? What would individuals need to do to consider their carbon status? I think our experience is that it can be uh, distributed very widely. Um, in our village, we've really had an impact by sharing f information between friends and neighbours. So if one neighbour does something which has a big impact, all the other neighbours and friends believe them, and so they'll quite happily copy them. But for us, it's been a much wider impact than that. We've had a ripple effect which has gone around the world. We've influenced over probably 150 communities in the UK, and we've done alliances with communities as far apart as New Zealand and Norway and Canada. Um, and so what we found is that if you, sh if you look at what you can do within your, your own area of influence and then tell people what happens, other people will listen and have a go themselves. And everybody's area of influence is different, and that's where the impact is. And we have noticed, rather than just working with things, domestic things, people have gone back to their offices and work and made changes at work as well, which has had a big effect on the businesses they work for. Do you think individual decisions are going to make a difference? I think there's no doubt that individual decisions make a difference all the time. If you look at action that's taken place to protect biodiversity or any form of uh, environmental issue on the planet, it's always, I think, comes from one or two individuals who have an idea and start something. And you only need to look around at some of the older establishments like Greenpeace and Oxfam, how a few individuals got together and then created a major worldwide impact. And more recently, you have characters such as Hermione Taylor, who's doing uh, Donation, which is encouraging people to take ac environmental action instead of sponsoring events. So I think what we're saying is every individual can do a difference. It's just making realizing what you can do within your area of influence. So how do you think we can influence uh, communities more widely? How can we get through to people in this, what we often call post-fact world, where whoever shouts loudest um, seems to win? I think the way we've seen you do it is um, you actually engage with the media to give them good stories. They're, and they're, we find they're always looking for good stories. Um, and so 
if you have if you're doing something which works even if it doesn't work but you learn something i think your duty is to share it with other people and other people will listen and in our experience when we've shared things we've got tremendous response from others around the world the, the latest um, media coverage we had was cnn and we've had number of emails and letters from american communities wanting to do something well that counteracts this post-fact world you're talking about it starts to make people aware of there are other solutions to what our politicians are proposing excellent effectively a way to trump trump right so things have suddenly gone very nick robinson or andrew ma on this podcast um, because with me now is the deputy leader of the green party amelia womack um amelia Tonight we're here because we've seen in the latest Living Planet report that wildlife populations have fallen by 58% since 1970. What can I do to protect the planet? I think it's a really hard question because this is a question that we've been asking for decades. I think we've been in a situation where after people being feeling like they can change things and not actually seeing those changes happen, that we need to appreciate that this is, um, if you look at governments, if you look at business, if you look at individuals, it's not one of these groups that's simply going to change things. It's, it's us all moving forwards together and influencing those changes. And the environment, although I get frustrated that it is treated as if it's a fringe issue, policy that isn't looking at biodiversity ignores the very foundations that we're building our society on. Um, we have no jobs on a dead planet. We have no um, economy on a dead planet. At the moment, it's clear that the system is broken. Even when you put policy in place, it's not always meeting the needs of the environment. Do you think we can change the way governments think about sustainability and the natural world to make it a bigger priority? I think that a lot of people have tried with this, if you look at the Stern um, review and report, for, for example, trying to make those connections between economics and the environment that really should have made governments sit up and listen to the challenges at hand. And I think that that individual politicians are listening. And one of my fears is a lack of un understanding that we see in many political bodies. It's interesting that we're, we're talking about this a week that um, Donald Trump got elected. And the fact that the, one of the most powerful people, if not the most powerful pe person in the world as a climate denier, really shows that if politicians aren't educated about the environment and species and biodiversity, then their policies can completely trample what years of individuals and people at the grassroots have been trying to change. I think we can educate politicians and I think we can educate governments but I think that that is as a result of lobbying, support and making sure that we have better investment into organisations who, who do educate and give um, those resources to politicians. Um, if we look at how the Living Planet report was reported in the media, there was lots of imagery about elephants, tigers, lions. Now, I, for one, have never shot an elephant, a lion, or a tiger, and I don't think I ever will, primarily because it's highly unlikely I will ever become an American dentist. <laughs> so how do you best communicate that we can all do something, even though these, these issues seem so far removed from us all? I think that that connection to the environment is so important. It's... Um, 
I, I imagine it a bit like uh, these tigers and elephants are a bit like the supermodels that you might see in a, um, in, on TV or the actors and actresses that you see on TV. And, um, you know, I, I have a real value for the, the humble hedgehog or, you know, the, the equivalent of maybe the boy next door who is... You can go into your back garden and see all of these species. And it is really hard for people to connect to that because may, as our lives become more and more disconnected from the environment, how many people have seen badgers, have seen hedgehogs and have seen these species that are part of our our local biodiversity. And beyond that, I think the other challenge is the role of insects and that people don't necessarily get really excited about bees or beetles or even spiders that that they might see as a pest rather than as a a vital part of our ecosystems. And those connections, I think, need to be made um, on a a different level. And the issues with bees at the moment, the fact that more people aren't concerned about the decline in population of bees really highlights that people haven't understood how vital they are to our very lives as we know them. Um, Do you think I personally can protect the planet? Our individual actions actually influence business, influence governments, and maybe you don't feel like you're changing the world with every can that you recycle or every time you use tap water instead of bottled water or every time you sign a petition, but these small changes are creating something bigger. So I'm here now uh, post-debate with uh, one of the members of the public attending the debate. What do you think was the main take-home message from this debate? I think there's general consensus that people's daily decisions can make a tangible difference, but actually I don't think there was any real clear consensus about either the processes by the the particular actions that would be useful for that to happen, uh, the processes by which that would scale up, to, say, lobbying governmental kind of action. Uh, But I also think there was this kind of undercurrent that wasn't been talked about, which was the structural stuff, macro-governmental, macro-economic questions that, in a way, are maybe slightly beyond the scope of the discussion or they're just a little bit too big for people to really get their heads around. I think, like, it's really difficult to kind of get your head around the large-scale drivers of a lot of these declines. And do you agree with the motion? Do um, personal lifestyle choices make a difference? I do, but I was quite ambiguous about it because I think I do think they make a difference, but I actually don't think they make a difference alone. So I think it would have been a really interesting question to ask, could your decisions alone drive that kind of change? I don't think the answer is definitely no. Excellent. Thank you very much. So it's now post-debate. Uh, the crowds have dispersed. The event was incredibly well attended and... Well, I suppose I'm left with wrapping up. We've been talking about, I get the impression that there's actually lots of positivity out there that we can have an impact with our lifestyle choices on wildlife. However, there were a few issues raised, which I think provide a lot of food for thought. The point was made that urgency is very important. Wildlife is declining now. We need to act now. The problem is that quite often it's very difficult for the individual to make the right choices. What is the guidance? What are the choices that we need to make? And how do we communicate this to our nearest and dearest family, friends, colleagues, companies? Because this is generally how how messages spread if you talk to like-minded people and then widen to maybe slightly less like-minded people. However, institutional support, institutional changes, technological advances, all of these things are needed. And, of course, political pressure 
all in all, I suppose if we had to put up a report card for today's debate, the debate was very enlightening, a lot of very good points made. After all, though, are we all a little bit wiser as to what to do? Maybe not. Thanks very much for listening to our very first podcast and hopefully speak to you again soon.